for coming out on a, on a cold evening like this. I, for me, this is such a familiar place. This is where I do my lectures um, to the part two students. So if you want to, I could give you um, uh, a lecture like that. Well, is that all right? Would you rather have that? Yeah, oh, come on. It's much more interesting. Than that. No, maybe not. Maybe not. How old are you really? Now, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, and this is some active research work I'm involved in with a team about ways of communicating risk to people. And, um, and what I'm going to do is to show sort of a wide range of different metaphors and ways in which risk are communicated. Now, first of all, if I can get this to work. Oh, well, why isn't my little puzzle work? I picked up the wrong one. Yeah, I think I've got the wrong little thing because I was giving a talk this morning. I've got the wrong one. Okay, never mind. That's right. I'll, um... <laughs> oh, that's not very good. Hang on. No, I'm a professional. I can cope. It's all right. Don't panic. Don't panic. Things will happen. Things will work. It'll go pop. And it'll work in just a moment. Oh, that's the one. Thanks very much. Yeah, that'll work. Okay, great. And now, yeah, what's the risk of that happening? <laughs> and I'm a pro, I'm a computer sees. Oh, I'm going to burst into tears in a moment. I really am. Yes, it has. This is what happens if you leave things on too long in PowerPoint. They all go wrong. So I'm going to have to. And I'm not going to extemporize. You are going to get this talk if it absolutely kills me. Oh, there we go. That's better. That should now work. There, there, hey, right, okay. So um, that is um, my thanks to Winton Capital Management who fund me. Um, and uh, we got the website, Understanding Uncertainty, which is great. Oh, well, I, you saw that last year. Anyone who came to the talk last year will have seen it, but I can't resist plugging it again. That's my latest book, Sex by Numbers, Statistics of Sexual Behavior. Uh, that's the cover. It took me a long time to write, took me a long time to choose the cover. Uh, that's the other cover which they didn't use. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why not. I, what's, wrong, what's wrong with that? Yeah, they said, I, I thought that was a perfectly reasonable cover. And they said, we can't have that one. No, no, this is the cover they dare not show. I thought they really mean. Don't know why, don't know why. Just can't understand it at all. Okay, so um, as was mentioned, I did this, this um, program, Science of Chance. And, um, and I said, uh, you know, they, I, they said, you've got to do something dangerous. So I said, oh, great. Can I like, jump? Can I swim with sharks like Brian Cox? And they said, <laughs> said no. Um, you're not Brian Cox, and we've only got 300 quid. <laughs> you, you find out when you start making TV that not all presenters are of the same class. <laughs> some get helicopters, some get to jump out of aeroplanes, which is what I did. So I, has anyone done a tandem skydive? And done that? Yeah, yeah, a few. What was it like? What did you think? Did you, was, did you think it was dangerous? Did you feel, were you scared? Oh, really? God, I'm scared. You're terrified, right, okay. Okay, quiz, what do you think is more dangerous? Jumping out of the plane or uh, 100 miles on a motorbike? A motorbike. What do you think is more dangerous? Jumping out of the plane or 10 miles on a motorbike? 
Yeah, yeah, now we're a bit more iffy, aren't we? Well, we'll see. And being a statistician, of course, I wanted to research this. So I went to the British Parachuting Association website. And, um, and here's, the web, here's the page, the Excel spreadsheet, which shows about their deaths. Now, you have to search quite hard for this website. <laughs> <laughs> they don't put it at the very front of the, of the page, of the, of the site at all. But if you click down and click down, you find this. And you find that 4,600,000 jobs, 48 deaths. It's almost exactly one in a hundred thousand, or ten in a million jumps end up with the death. Um, I was doing a tandem, uh, about a third of a million tandem jumps, two deaths. I think these might have been correlated events. I'm <laughs> <laughs> suspicious that these, were not, these might have been similar incidents. Anyway, so this is uh, just uh, three in a million. I reckon jumping out of the plane, I was taking about a seven in a million chance that I'd be killed. Was that okay? So is that big? Is that small? How does that compare with me cycling to here in this evening and, you know, doing just going about normal life? You know, how does it compare? How can we make these comparisons? Well, fortunately, there is a unit of acute risk that we can use. And I'll mention this idea. A microwave is fantastically useful, useful unit. So one in a million chance of sudden death. And, um, and this, I think it's a great unit, which I use in lots of things. And um, other people start to use it a bit more. I didn't invent it, unfortunately, which I had. Um, but one of them is a good sort of base rate because uh, there's 50 million people in England and Wales, and about 50 every day die non-natural deaths, essentially violent deaths, accidents or violence or something. So that's so it's one in a million non-natural deaths um, per day. So rough, very roughly speaking, you experience one micromort a day. <coughs> by the way you cycle, by walking down the street, by various things that might fall out of, you know, out of the building onto your head, pretty unlikely, but these rare, bizarre accidents that might happen, or if, you're, if you do DIY and, and, and stand at the top of wobbly ladders, that kind of thing. So it, it, about one micromort a day, it'd be more for you know, joyriding than kids, it'd be more for older people wobbling on bicycles like me. So, uh, but basically it's one in a million. So it's a good unit as a baseline. So it's a week's worth, right? Jumping out the flames is about a week's worth. Oh, that's all right, yeah, do that. Um, now, the, re the advantage of a, of a unit like a microwave, here, for example, is the unit. Oh, I don't know what's happened to the title there, but it's a Fill in the gaps, and you get the US Parachuting Association data. Now, this is how they display their data. And they do this 3.006 fatalities per thousand jumps. Well, that's six micromorts, that's all. Much easier so you can see that over the last 14 years or so, it's declined about 12, 13 microvolts, it's getting safer, down to about 7, 8 microvolts a time. So that's what, what it is in US parachuting. Um, uh, scuba diving is about 5, hang gliding is about 8, running a marathon is about 7. All these sports come in at roughly the same risk of death. They're safe enough so they become mass participation, but they are quite extreme. Whereas if you're a base jumper, if you want to you know, strap on a wingsuit and hurl yourself off a building or off a cliff, then it's at least 400 every time. So are there any base jumpers in the audience? Yeah, there's a reason there's no base jumpers. <laughs> this is not the safe thing to do. And these wingsuit flyers are so fantastic. I just want to do that. Actually, it's not a very sensible thing to do. So um, here's a few, just a few statistics that you, know, you can compare about different activities. This is about the lowest risk I can think of, the lifetime risk of being hit by an asteroid, which is because it's about one in 70 million chance per year, people have estimated. So 
don't worry. Yeah, I mean, let's not panic too much about that. That's the daily risk, skydive about 710. Then we see these different risks per day of, of military activity. The most dangerous thing I can think was going over the top on the first day of the song that people have, in a sense, almost voluntarily exposed themselves to. Bomber command over in the Second World War was one micromorter second to be flying over Germany, 55,000 killed. So um, it was extraordinarily dangerous. But even things like, you know, your, your bypass graft, So that's a motorbike. I like miles on a motorbike. It's quite a good reference. So, so the, the skydive is the one I thought my tandem was about seven. That's um, seven times seven. That's about 40 miles on a motorbike. So you get a nice calibration. You start getting an image of what these things are worth. So anything you do now, you can transfer. I like miles on a motorbike. Similarly, as we're going to see in a moment, I like cigarettes as, a, as another comparison. How many cigarettes is this worth? You know, so I, my, my natural comparison is miles on a motorbike. And um, so this enables us to make these comparisons, but these are for acute risks, the things that are going to you know, damage you on the spot. What about chronic risks? What about uh, that? That's why you're a night out. Yeah, I don't know who likes this kind of food, but this sort of muck you know, is just great. I love it. Great big greasy spam fritter or something. Now, the point is that this, this is risky food. But it's not risky food in the sort of micromort sense. You know, unless you actually choke on your spam because <laughs> you're eating it so fast, you know, it's not going to kill you on the spot. So a micromort is the wrong unit for food, for alcohol. Well, alcohol is a bit different because you might have a car crash because you've been drinking or something like that. But generally alcohol, lifestyle, exercise, diet, micromort is the wrong unit. So we've been struggling for ages to come up with a way, and I'm going to show you a number of these, to communicate the risks of chronic risks. And this is much more tricky because it's to do with the sort of damage we're doing to our bodies by our lifestyle. Now, this is a chronic risk story that you may remember back in earlier last, later last year, the, the killer bacon sandwich story. This is from the newspaper. Bacon, ham and sausages have the same cancer risk as cigarettes, warn experts. No, they didn't. They, they did not say that in any way at all, but never mind. The risk communication by the WHO was so bad that newspapers could interpret it that. What they, people may remember the story, what it was is that the WHO put processed meat, bacon, sausages, etc., etc., in the same class as cigarettes when it came to the evidence for carcinogenicity. If I keep on saying it, I'll be able to say it. Carcinogenicity. So when it came down, so they found, they found the evidence of the carcinogenicity of bacon was strong enough to match up the cigarettes. It didn't mean the magnitude of the risk was the same. And, and uh, the newspapers got it wrong. And there was endless discussion, and the WHO had to issue you know, clarifying press releases. Absolute balls up of risk communication. Could have told them, and they, they've had previous on this, they always do it. They always do it. I told them, I went to IARC and said, don't do it like this, and they did it like that. So what they should have done 
is to actually communicate about what this meant. Okay, what they actually communicated was that 50 grams of processed meat a day, uh, that's about th two, three rashes of bacon, a big, big, big sausage, um, is associated with an 18% annual increase in annual risk of getting bowel that's what they do. So overall, an 18% increased risk of getting bowel So that's the basic message that they communicated. And, uh, and uh, they believed it was caused. Which I, I'm quite prepared to believe that. So the point is that that message in itself is in terms of what's known as a relative risk. It's saying it's increasing our, our chances an 18%. And it's very difficult to interpret, as I'll show you in a moment. How should we interpret those messages? We should be interpreting them in terms of what it means for 100 people. That's the standard way now in which um, medical students are taught to communicate risk to patients, to use this idea of what's called expected frequencies. It's a very powerful idea, expected frequencies. What, instead of using chances and percentages and relative risks and things, just say, what does it mean for 100 people? Now, what it means for, to know what it means for 100 people, you have to know what the risk is of getting bowel cancer. If you don't eat bacon, you have to know the baseline risk. And this is, and usually it's only CRUK. CRUK, Cancer Research Australia, is fantastic in its risk communication. It's the most, it's the best. If you want to know any information about cancer, communicate it in the best way possible. Go onto the CRUK website. Their comms are fantastic. It's so much better than anybody else. And they always report the absolute risk. They will tell you that around six of the hundred people will get bowel cancer during their lifetime. So that's the, the, the base rate. And so we can imagine a hundred people you know, sitting, you know, like you, smug, Cambridge middle-class people, <laughs> sitting down your muesli and compote breakfast and all this stuff, I can imagine. I just know what it's like. But sadly, 100 people like you will still Let's compare it with 100 slobs, oops, 100 slobs who sit down every morning and eat a great big three-rasher greasy bacon sandwich, stuff it into their gob, that's how many will get breast cancer, no, no, bowel cancer. See the difference? No? Well, where is it? That's the difference. Because that's the 18% increase over the baseline rate. Six goes to seven. So that's 100 people, all those people, eating one of those every day of their lives to get that one extra case of market. Now, put like that, it all looks a bit different, doesn't it? And bless them, the BBC um, online, you know, the website, took that as, their, as the description of what the story actually made, which is very good because it actually turns it into a bit less of a story, you know, but it puts it in perspective. And many of us are arguing that actually if you're going to communicate risks in a transparent, balanced way, this is the kind of metaphor that you might want to use. And I'm using the word metaphor on purpose. This is storytelling. This is admitting that numbers do not speak for themselves. The way in which they're packaged, the way in which they're related, even the imagery used them, even the colors used them, can be important in terms of the message people get. And if we are genuinely communicating risk and we're doing it in a responsible way, we will research that and understand how the messages are received and what impact this, this kind of communication might have. So it's really important, you know, these are stories, these are narratives, and the, the, the metaphors we use are important. And I'm going to explore with you a number of different metaphors we could use. So here's one. What would it mean to 100 people like you? Okay, so that's become a standard metaphor. Just to show how um, messages are distorted, are manipulated to change or affect your emotions, how numbers don't speak for themselves. 
Here's a bit of direct-to-consumer advertising about Lipitor, which some of you may well be on, you know, st standard statin, which reduces the risk, as they tell you, in America, the population reduces your risk of a heart attack by 36%, which it does. Yeah, no, that's believable. Then in small print down here, you can read that what this means is that over five years, 3% three, of patients taking a sugar pill will have a heart attack, and that will go down to 2% of patients taking Lipitor. What it doesn't say is what that means, is that it means that 100 people are going to have to take this drug every day for five years with accompanying side effects to prevent one heart attack. It doesn't say that, does it? If it did, it would say an even smaller print. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tiny print that you couldn't read it. So you see, the way you tell the story changes your emotional impression of the influence of this. And frankly, and it's been fact, if you start explaining things in that way, people say, well, maybe I won't take my statin. Anyway, is that a good thing? It's a bad thing. So no, I'm not going to say. But it does show that the way the numbers are portrayed can influence people's feelings about it. Okay. So when these numbers, when these relative risks, the 18% increase, the 36% decrease, and all this stuff, which is frankly now in the trade are seen as manipulative forms of communication, and you should be wary of them. When they are reported, you know, what does the media do with it? Well, it's just disastrous, frankly. So we, I'm going to be talking quite a lot about meat. Um, this is when the red meat story came out. The Daily Express said, if people cut down the amount of red meat they eat uh, to less than half a serving a day, 10% of all deaths could be avoided. Whoa! <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, really. You know, God, aren't statistics wonderful? It makes me proud to be a statistician. 10% of all deaths can be avoided. No, I don't think they said that. To be completely honest, I don't think they said that. I don't know what they did say, but they certainly didn't say, didn't say that. So people have a lot of trouble with this idea of relative risk. And, um, but it is one way to communicate that risk. Um, I, what, what do we mean by relative risk in this sense? Is actually technically known as a, as a hazard ratio. A hazard ratio. It's, it's what epidemiological studies measure. And what it says is, is how much your, the annual risk of dying or getting a disease, but I'll talk about dying, increases by people exposed to eating the meat or, or drinking or whatever like that. Now, I call you calling it a hazard. The, the name of the hazard, the old name of the hazard, is the force of mortality. The force of mortality. This is, this is, the, this is a description of the force, the current force of mortality for men in this country from a few years ago. It hasn't changed much. And what it means, what the force of mortality is, is the chance of not making an next birthday, or the proportion of people who won't make their next birthday. So um, I'm 62, and um, so I can look up there and see that about 1% of people my age do not make 63. You know, die during their 62nd year. Um, and uh, in their 40s, around about, you know, that's one in a thousand there, so we see here, but 36 year olds, about one in a thousand don't make their 37th of 36 year olds. What we see though is if these are the, the small kids born. We generally these will be with congenital conditions and they'll be dying in their first year, then it drops down, it gets safer and safer and safer, till we get seven years old, and seven years old, and that's for girls, uh, it's about nine years old there. And nobody in the whole history of humanity on this planet has ever been safer than seven, eight, nine year olds in this country. And what do we do? Drive them to school in, the, in our Range Rovers, we look after them, we're concerned about everything they eat, and that sort of thing. Nobody's ever, ever been safer, ever, anywhere, in the whole world, ever. <laughs> <laughs> just, let's stop making such 
keep, keep it in perspective. Um, so, but then after this, we see this increase. And this is the sad bit. This is risk-taking youth. The jump at 17. Less for girls, but still there, the 17-year-old jump. Risk-taking youth is really, every one of these is, is a real tragedy. But it keeps on going up. You know, it just keeps on going up. And, and uh, yeah, just look at that, look at that picture. Um, it just keeps on going up. We'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, so these hazard ratios, this is the kind of st the, um, uh, statistics that come out of big epidemiological studies. For example, the wonderful EPIC Norfolk study, from which uh, that one's derived, and that one's derived, actually most of these are derived from the, from the big EPIC Norfolk study, who follow up, you know, 40,000 people or something like that for the years, and look at their diet and their activity and things like that, and then look at you know, they count the bodies, essentially, see how many people die over and above, and then you know, look at um, yeah, how it relates to their lifestyle factors. And they find things like this. This is wonderful. Just remember this one. Two hours, they find this association that two hours watching television at night, like that, is associated with a 9% increased annual risk of death. Now, it's not the television. You know, I don't think it's not sending out the rays into you, into your brain. No, no. It's not the television. This is just sitting on your backside doing nothing at all. Sedentary behaviour. I mean, it's just, I mean, there's going to be so much more about this in the future. It's why people are moved, trying to say you've got to get up and move around, you stand at desks, stand at meetings, because this whole is for people just sitting in front of the terminals. But just, just sitting, just sitting is bad for you, for reasons that probably these people in the audience know more about than I do. This is the processed meat. I did it for bowel cancer, but it's all cause mortality. There's a strong association with that. Five fruit veg a day, fantastic. About a one third, associated with one third um, annual uh, decrease in death. This is an interesting one. The first 20 minutes, moderate activity. Fantastic effect there. First 20 minutes. Getting off of your backside for the first 20 minutes each day is really cool. Huge bang for up there. Um, and that's why people recommend 150 in government guidelines, 150 minutes a week of moderate activity. Because you get a huge benefit from the first. After that, the next 40 minutes, well, you can do it if you want, but you know, <laughs> let's, not, let's not go overboard on it. And after this, really, you don't bother unless you're really keen, unless you're slightly obsessive. But the, the, this is moderate activity. The crucial thing with this sense, of course, is just moving around the value of that. And of course, the worst thing of all is just being male. Uh, dead loss, that is. Absolute dead loss. You saw that blue curve was everywhere. It's 50% higher than the, than the um, red curve, because we're on a log multiplicative scale. We'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, so I, what have I dealt with so far? I mean, the metaphor I've used so far is the hazard ratio. I'm just going to show you a little brief clip, which I hope will work, of a, a, a thing I did with Michael Mosley, who I think is excellent, on a program about meat, where we discuss other ways of communicating the risk of meat-eating and processed meat-eating. Count the metaphors. There are four metaphors used, numerical metaphors, used in this very brief clip. And I wonder if it's going to work. Let me just see if this is going to work. Uh, yeah. Let's go full screen and let's hope it's going to work. The Harvard Aesthetic Study first suggests eating a moderate amount of processed meat increases your annual risk of death by about 20%. Can you, can you hear that? Oh, 20%. But is terrible, sorry. Why are you not? 
<laughs> For this one is the change in life expectancy, taking years off your life, two years off your life. And they use that a lot in the imagery and things like that. This one, remember the hour off your life, fruits, bacon, sandwich. Bring it right to the day. It's a fraction of your life. So the daily loss or gain in life expectancy from your habit. And that's quite a part. Now that one, this is the one I actually want to concentrate on, number two, which I snuck in there, which I said because I said that it gives you the risk of somebody two years older than you are. Like it's giving two years, making you two years older. And that's the one I'd like to concentrate on. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. That's the one I'd like to concentrate on. Because that's one that actually is showing itself to seem to be a very psychologically um, I don't know, powerful image to use. What is your real age? This is the really topic of my talk. How old are you really? Not your chronological age, but how old is your body in terms of its effective age? So here we've got Dr. Oz. I mean, any Americans who might know Dr. Oz, he's ghastly man. And he's, on, he's on television and he's always so smug looking and you want to hit him, don't you? And, um, and he says, and his chronological age is 55, but his real age, because he's a smug kid, is 47. <laughs> because he's so healthy. Because, and then, of course, he tries to flog you his supplements and all this sort of stuff and all sorts of. He's responsible for promoting all sorts of dubious treatments on television. But there's endless sites like this. If you just go on, I don't suggest you do, find out what is your real age, you'll find it is this, is this woman who's, you know, she's calendar age is 60, but she's eating red meat and getting stressed, so her real age is 67, so she better take the supplements as well. And uh, there's endless things trying to sell you this stuff. There's also what I regard as good sites that will tell you this. I don't know if people have been on NHS Choices and kind of their heart age. Great, it's very good. I was partly responsible for producing this site, and huge numbers of people do it, in which you put in your findings, your cholesterol, your blood pressure, things, and tell you how old your heart is. Um, very powerful idea. And uh, there's another one, this is Heart Age, um, World Heart Federation, take the test, again, you put in your information, it finds out, oh, your heart, here, this, and look, 17 years older than their calendar age. And this one's 11 years younger, I don't know what they're doing. Anyway, amazing to do that. So you can, you can run them. These sites are all online. Some of them are good, some of them aren't. Some of them are very reputable. And I'd like to point out, you know, we'll try to show you how you can make this thing reputable. Because it's been shown in randomized trials where you show this information to people that telling people their heart age can be a very effective motivator. Telling people their lung age can be an effective motivator to give up smoking. So how, what does this mean? What's the effective age of your organs? Because there's brain age. You find out how old your brain is, for the generic idea is that it's the age of a healthy person who has the same risk or function as you. So let's draw a little picture of that just to show what that means. It means that if you've got some risk level, which may be how, how healthy your heart is, or um, your chance of a heart attack or stroke in the next five years, or your lung function and things like that, and you, this is your age and you've measured your risk level, but you've also got a, a uh, uh, calculated from population data, a trajectory of what you'd expect a typical healthy person would go through as their age increases. And it's always going to increase with age, because age gets us in the end. So you just draw a line across here, and find a draw down there, and it tells you your effective age. So a really simple idea, simple algorithm, beautifully simple idea to tell you actually what your effective age is. I think this is a really powerful idea. Um, you can find out your other age. This is based on the UK Biobank data. Your other age, you put in all this information about how many cars you've got, 
and it tells you how old you are. And of course, this is just a proxy, really, for the social class and for, for um, disposable income, which, of course, is related to your upper age. What this does for upper age, it's just a curious thing, because when everyone uses upper age, and oh, and how fast you walk. Ah, it's very important. It's great to run through this and change your answers. See what happens, see how old you can make yourself. <laughs> um, and they told, I told me I was 52, I'm 62, they told me I was 52, it's really cool. And then I found, I was on the radio, on the PM, uh, on PM doing this, and I said, and he had done it, and he was 10 years older than said, Everyone who does this is 10 years younger, sorry, younger, than their, real, than their chronological age. It, it's a huge boost. Everybody is 10 years younger. Why? How can everybody? <laughs> that is a really subtle answer to this, which took me a while to grasp why everybody I talked to was coming in at 10 years less than their chronological age. What they did was use this, they didn't use a healthy person for the trajectory, they used the average risk for the trajectory. Okay. So, and they presented it like that. So it told me my five-year risk of dying is 2.5%. Thank you very much. Really nice to know. Um, and they did it as 100 people. Nice icon array. Scattered icons. Good at scattered icons. It, in, it increases the um, impression of, of unpredictability. So we know that. So quite a nice community, risk communication there. But still, why is everybody so healthy? And there's a very subtle reason for this, if this will work. Yeah, okay. It compares with the average five-year risk, the mean, not the median, the mean risk. And then almost all that risk is contributed by very few very sick people. Most of us have got, a, you know, my age or any age, have got a very low chance of, of dying in the next five years. A few people have got a very high risk. So when you take, you've got, what it means is you've got a distribution with nearly everybody down very low and a few very high ones, and they pull the whole thing up. So the average is somewhere in the middle, and it means that nearly everybody is less than average. It's a classic joke about numbers of legs. Remember, nearly every no, right way. Nearly everybody has got more than the average numbers of legs. <laughs> but the average number of legs is 1.9999. Nearly everyone's got two. So nearly everyone's got two, and it's exactly the same principle but why, so nearly everyone is less than average, it's like the numbers of legs. And they should use the median. They should use the median risk, not the average risk. So that was a, an interesting issue to show what happens when you just use the wrong average. I mean, you know, it's so boring to teach mean, median, mode, and all this kind of stuff. It's very important. Okay, let's go back to this picture. This picture of the, of the hazard of false mortality is an extraordinary picture. And this guy called Gompertz in... Uh, where's Gompertz? Oh, where's Gompertz? Okay, I, I thought Gompertz was there. Um, Gompertz in 18... You might crop up later. Gompertz in 1825 looked at this, and he looked like that, and he said, that's a straight line. Apart from the bulge, it's a straight line. It was a straight line in 1825. It's come down since then, but it stayed as a straight line. With a very similar gradient. So that's men, that's women. That's in the, that's in the US. Men and women, very similar picture in the US, that's the latest statistics of that. Similar gradient, slightly narrowing, but basically similar gradient. Now this is an interesting thing. Do people know about this? This is US data divided by race or ethnicity in the US. Now, what you expect to see, the highest risk are non-Hispanic black men. Very high risk there, very substantial. 
Then white people, white men in the middle, and bottom are Hispanic men. Lowest risk group are Hispanic men. And the same for women. This is known, many people know that this is known as a Hispanic paradox. Hispanics in the US are the healthiest people with the lowest mortality. They're the poor, poor not high social class. No adjustment here at all. It's just straight description. That's just a straight descriptive statistic. The Hispanic paradox is extraordinary. People spend endless trying to explain this. One explanation is what's called the salmon hypothesis. Do people go back to Mexico or whatever when they're ill and they're old? But no, no. It's not showing this is just due to lower risk among older people. No, no. And so they wonder, what is this? Is it due to their diet when they're young? This is a log scale. Remember, it's a multiplicative scale. It goes 0.1, 1 in 1,000, 1 in 100, 1 in 10, and that sort of thing. And his observation, okay, I've gone back to this again, third time for this picture. So he spotted the straight line here, and what it means is that the annual risk of dying each year, on average, goes up by 9% for every year older than you get. It's a constant increasing risk. It's like compound interest. Every year older, and you know what compound interest does, it builds up. And it really does build up. It means that the average annual risk of dying doubles every eight years. So every year with you, it goes from you know, uh, 25, 33, 41, 49, 57. It's doubling every time. That's why it gets you in the end. <laughs> Sorry. It's age. It's age. All this lifestyle stuff can move you down a bit and move the whole thing down a little bit. But the gradient keeps on going up. And that gradient, that 9%, seems to be a fact of life. It's a fact of life in the body. It seems to be very constant across cultures, across ages, across periods, across genders, etc., etc. This, this gradient is um, something to do with us that we, we just fall apart at that rate. Nothing much you can do about it. But you can move the curve up and down a bit. That's the crucial thing. Okay, so, and this is where this idea of how old are you really. What we worked. What I'm saying there is that each year older that you get is equivalent to increasing your risk of death by nine percent. That was exactly the same as watching two hours of television a night. It's associated with that. So watching two hours of television a night has the same effect on your risk as if you were a year older. It's making you a year older. Okay. So the maths of that is a bit of maths, a lot of maths. A habit with a hazard ratio H is essentially equivalent to advancing your age by t years. Well, 1.09 to the power t equals h. We can solve that into an equation. If I give you the hazard ratio for a habit, bacon sandwiches, 1.18. In that calculation, two years. They put two years on your age, the effective age. And any number I can put in there, and it'll tell me how many effect the years it makes me older or younger. Now, I invented that, and then found I hadn't invented it. <laughs> It had been done 20 years ago by um, this wonderful paper by Sandra Greenland and others on rate advancement period. This has been well known for ages. I just didn't know about it, but never mind. I still feel I invented it. <laughs> but I rediscovered it. So it's great. What it means is that we can take these activities, which are you know, fairly good hazard ratios from good epidemiological studies, and turn them into changes in our age. And this is pretty rigorous. 
This is, this is, you know, it's a rigorous activity. We'd say that the 20 minutes moderate activity a day, the, the reduction in risk associated with that is the same as being two years younger. I mean, and being a man makes you four years older, essentially, than a woman the same because you've got the same risk of dying as a woman, the same, um, uh, an average woman, um, four years younger, four years older, sorry. So that's what, so you can change. So what it means is that all these, you know, ridiculous Dr. Oz type scales can be made a lot more rigorous. I could go through this, I can do it with air pollution, I can do it with all sorts of facts, and, add, and do the adding and subtracting to your effective age. Okay. So, and you know, there's endless things, oh God, drink more, how many glasses of water do you drink? Don't bother with go, go, these all, sites are all drivel. But never mind. The point is, though, that these, what's annoying is that they could be doing this properly. <laughs> they could, there's a rigorous basis for what your, your effective age is. So don't, don't, it got me to 51, that was, I don't know what I Okay, so finally, my final metaphor, the one that, my, uh, that Michael Mosley likes so much. This is the one, this is the one that's a bit iffy, to be honest. Um, let's say that, you know, a habit um, like eating 80 grams of red meat or something, it's supposed to reduce my life expectancy by about a year. And I'm an adult, young adult, I've got about 50 years to live, you know, so I'm in my 30s or 20, late 20s, 30s, 50 years to live. It's taking a year off my life, um, you know, that's 2% of my life, that's a 50th of my life. So pro rata, that's like a week a year, or like half an hour a day, which is again 2% of the time. So life expectancy, pro-rata, we view it as a, as a strict sort of, um, you know, evenly divided throughout our life. Taking a year of a life is equivalent to 30 minutes off your life expectancy for each day that we have. So that's the one you like, because it said that the bacon sandwich is an hour, so it's as if you're doing something that's taking an hour off your life expectancy. I mean, we don't know what the effect of a bacon sandwich is. One bacon sandwich is completely unquantifiable. But... Uh, over, as a lifetime habit, it's as if you're doing something that's taking half an hour of your life expectancy. Now, half an hour, half an hour, and this is the, my climax of the talk, is that half an hour, I can teach you something if it kills me, something I bet you didn't know, a million half hours is 57 years, which is an adult lifespan, roughly. 57 years, you know, some of them will live longer, and but some of their 20s, you expect to live 57 years. So anybody here is in their 20s, you've got a million half hours to get rid of. And that's one of them, one of them half of them gone already listening to me. So they're ticking away these million and a half hours. And you do 48 a day, tick, 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 just going past. Just imagine them, this great clock. We should have, it's great, you should have on your bedroom wall a thing with a million this week. <laughs> but what, what we call that then is a micro life. It's a millionth of a life. So half an hour of life expectancy. Is a micro life. So essentially, what I've done is unite all these three things. A hazard ratio of about 1.1 is equivalent to about a year of your life, it's equivalent to something that makes you a year older, and it's equivalent to a losing a micro life a day. So all these four things can be put together within a single structure. And we're now doing randomized trials on, on uh, randomizing people to these different uh, metaphors to see which one's the most vivid, which one makes them most wish to you know, think about their behavior. Um, so finally, we can say that on average, as if, you, if something you're doing something makes you a year older, or losing one microlife a day, um, uh, of, uh, you know, a red meat. Red, meat. red meats, that, as I said, WHO said the causal evidence is the strongest processed meat, but I'd say roughly speaking, it's associated with half an hour a day. So again, burger, half an hour, eat it slowly, definitely. Take half an hour. Drink, drink, well, drinks, you know, said is iffy, 
I, I, if someone asks me, I will talk about alcohol guidelines, but uh, that's quite controversial. But definitely, after well, it is incontroversial, after a couple of drinks at least, it's going up, the risk is going up like that. And it's roughly, I think, uh, a unit is about 15 minutes off your life on average. So two minutes to a reasonable drink is about half an hour off your life. And then um, a couple of cigarettes. <laughs> so that's half, half an hour off your life. Um, 20 cigarettes a day, associated with a loss of life expectancy, eight, nine years, cancer ratio of two, and that's equivalent to making you ten, eight, nine, ten years older, and equivalently on pro rata, um, losing five hours a day. So if you're smoking 20 a day, you're going towards your death. Instead of going at 24 hours, you're going 29 hours. Except you're gasping, you're not running, you're gasping. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, oh, I apologize for this. Those of you who have a nervous disposition might want to look away. Um, I, got, I, got, I, got, I got a body double for this. Um, somebody who's five kilograms overweight, because five kilograms overweight for someone of average weight of BMI is um, a, you know, it's a roughly 1.09 hazard ratio. So it's about half an hour on average off your life for every five kilos you are overweight. So there, there's a lesson for you. So these are all roughly equivalent things. All those drinks, so you know, one can would be half an hour. So, um, yeah, just think about it. So uh, you can do it with air pollution. We did, I did this, I got quoted in all sorts of newspapers because I did a calculation that um, it's about two hours off your life living in Delhi at the moment. For every day you live in Delhi, about two hours off your life. Because that's working about 80, 90 uh, micrograms of PM2.5 per cubic meter. And the hazard ratio associated with an increase of 10 micrograms per cubic meter is about 1.06. So, um, and so we can, we can work out from that roughly what living in any city does to you in terms of daily exposure. So that's about eight cigarettes. So roughly speaking, living in Delhi is about eight cigarettes a day. So it's not a great thing to do. Of course we don't, because he, he did a stopover for three days, um, and we don't know what the effect was, but you know, averaged over you know, many exposures, that's what, it, that's what you work at. So I'll, I'll finish there and just um, point you to this Scandinavian orange juice that promises um, you know, uh, eternal life, um, and with the only you know, response that, well, if you do do that, you won't have anyone to talk to. <laughs> so quantity isn't everything, quality is important too. Thank you very much.